Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Uh, Why, yes, it's true. Welcome. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 276. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two fine conversations for you on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, we'll talk with David Roth of Defector. Up first, though, an award-winning filmmaker who's produced some terrific documentaries through the years. His brand new one takes a look at Jason Kelsey, the longtime starting center of the Philadelphia Eagles, and chronicled last season the trip to the Super Bowl where he squared off against his brother, Travis, of the Kansas City Chiefs in what what became known as the Kelsey Bowl. And also along the way, Jason tried to decide whether he wanted to continue after 12 years in the National Football League. All that uh, while his wife is ready to have a baby. A lot of things going on in his world. And all chronicled in this terrific new documentary that's streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Here's filmmaker Don Argut on Downtown. Hey, Don. Hey, how are you, Rich? I'm doing great. Uh, it's awesome to talk with you. Our uh, mutual friend Joe Mason has been trying to get us together together oh, for quite Joe. some time. <laughs> Joe's the best, man. He's been a, he's been an amazing cheerleader. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I, I got to tell you, I watched the film last night. It's uh, streaming now on Amazon Prime. It's uh, fantastic, and I know uh, you and your partner Sheena Joyce have described it as a a love letter to Philadelphia and the Eagles. Yes. Yes. I think so. I think it's a love letter to the city. I think it's a love letter to uh, the team. But, uh, you know, I think it's also bigger than that. I think it's, it, it shows you within Jason and what he has to go through to be the best at something and what that means and how hard that is to walk away from. And I think there's just so much in this film that I think people can take from it uh, for their own lives, frankly. And, and if, any, if ever, anybody can get anything out of it is, that you know to, to to all the cliche things that you say but i think it's validated in in this film is you know don't give up you know believe in yourself and i think more importantly make sure you have people around you that believe in you absolutely that is that's the secret sauce of any success right it's not and nobody's ever ever does it on their own it, it always takes a team of people uh to 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 make stuff like this happen and you know this is no exception well, and, and yes, in a sense, it's a sports documentary, but the sports aspect of it is really secondary to the story of, of uh, Jason, his remarkable family and the people around him, and the decisions that so many people have to make along the way about uh, what's the next step in my career and in my life. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it's easy, again, to be, to be cynical about things like this, like, oh, well, you know, these guys, they make so much money, and, you know, they're going to be fine. And, you know, again, the that's not true. You know, just because you have money, A, doesn't mean you're happy, and B, doesn't mean you're going to have money all the time. So, you know, there's no guarantees. And I think when you see Jason really struggle with walking away from this game that he loves so much, and not, and, and not because he loves it superficially, because what you get from him is something I think so much more powerful and something I think we all – I think have inside of us, which is how do I be the best at something? When I, when I go in to do my thing, am I the best at it? How can I be the best at it? How can I continue to work to be the best at it? And that's been Jason's entire 
life in a way. And so the, the playing football isn't just like the high that you get from playing the game. It's that you can go out there week after week and be measured by how much you put in. And you, and he says in the film at the, at the end when he's really struggling um, to, to whether he's going to stay or, or, or leave the game, you know, like that you have to go out there and prove your work every day. And that is something that motivates him. And that's beautiful. You know, and, and, and there's a, an amazing documentary that was made years ago called uh, Euro Dreams of Sushi about the master like sushi chef. And that's that whole film is really about that. It's about like how you dedicate your life to something to be the very best at it. And uh, that's what this is. But then Jason inevitably has to say, like, he can't make he can't do this the rest of his life. This isn't he's not going to do this when he's 65 years old. He's, he's got a shelf life and it's coming to an end. And he knows that. So that makes the stakes and what he's going through all the more powerful. And part of that internal struggle that we see in the film is, uh, I know what it takes to be the best at being an NFL offensive lineman, but can I be the best podcaster? Can I be the best cow farmer, whatever direction I go next? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because that's how he operates. That's how he moves through the world. Like, Hey, I'm going to get into like cow farming how do I be the best at it? You know what I mean? Like that's how he approaches everything. And that's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, the relationship with his brother, Travis is great. And, and with his mother and father and their uh, unique story as well. And that, that's such a key component in the story. Yeah. And I think that's what it comes down to. You know, you, you, you have to figure out how to find people in your life that are, that support you and believe in you. And, you know, it's funny, obviously after the Super Bowl you know, with Donna getting all the attention as the mom and, you know, obviously also Ed as well, people reaching out like, they, you know, they all, everybody almost wants to like take notes and have them write books about how, how do you raise boys that get to play in the Super Bowl, right? I mean, because, you know, that they, they have two sons that play on two different teams that have been to the Super Bowl now a total of five times. Travis has been there three times. Jason's been there two times. I mean, that in and of itself is, is incredible. And I, and they get asked all the time, like, you know, what's the secret? And, you know, the secret is to be, to put your kids first, to believe in them, to support them, to make sure that you're there to prop them up when they need to be propped up and make sure they have an outlet to, to, you know, explore the things that they're passionate about. That's really it. Right. And there's no, there's no magic to that. It's really, that's what good parenting is. Uh, they weren't, they were never grooming them to be, you know, NFL, you know, NFL stars. It was wherever they were going to end up was they just wanted them to be happy and have a good foundation to, to build off of. And, you know, obviously they made the most of that. We're talking with Don Argett about the new film, Kelsey, streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Uh, his relationship with his wife, Kylie, is just great, Matt. She seems like the perfect person to understand this world he lives in and to be able to balance family and career. But I love the story of their first date. It was not an auspicious start. <laughs> no, they met on Tinder. And, uh, you know, they tell the story in the film, and, and it's, it's, it's very funny. There, You know, uh, we, we had the Philly premiere last week, uh, and, and uh, we got to screen it in a theater with, you know, with the cast and crew and, and people in the city. And, man, the, the response, the laughing and the crying, it was so beautiful because it was like, you know, everybody got it. 
and everybody was in it the whole time. And, and, you know, their relation, Jason and Kylie's relationship is so funny. And Jason and Travis's relationship is very funny too, but there's so much, but then there's also like real, real heart and heartbreak in the film too. So it's like balancing it. It's a roller coaster that you go on. And I think people weren't really ready for it. Well, I'll say, and a a really poignant moment in the film, and and you can't talk about pro football, college football, uh, without dealing with CTE. And that moment late in the film when Jason is trying to decide uh, what his path is going to be and and talks about uh, the ability to rationalize the possibility of CTE and how it might affect him as a dad and, and maybe as a granddad down the road. Yeah, it's it's incredible. That's that's always been one of the scenes that I'm I'm just blown away by his honesty and his candor. And and I, and I, and I think it's real. You know, I mean, listen, we don't. And he says in the in the in the film, you know. We're not guaranteed anything. We're not guaranteed a long life. We're not, you know, that nobody knows, you know, how it's all going to go. So, like, if if you don't, if you start making decisions based on, you know, all the things that may happen in the future in your present, you know, you're really shortchanging yourself. And I think Jason is a perfect example of somebody who lives in the moment and is is aware of, you know, all the 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 you know negative sides of of playing playing in the NFL, but he's okay with that. And that's, and that is his truth. Right. And that is, a, that's in no way endorsing like, well, you know, CTE isn't a big deal or anything like that, but it really does come down to the individual. These are everybody that has, that has a, a, something to say about CTE. Sure. They can have their stay in it, but like if Jason is the one that's got to make the decision for himself, whether he's comfortable with that risk. I mean, we all, we all go into certain every, you know, you know, scary moments, but there's some element of risk to it. Right. And we have to make those decisions, whether we're okay with the risk or not. And, you know, I think in that moment and his honesty is really, really like powerful. It's very powerful. Don, what is it uh, that, that drew you to Jason's story and, and what makes him uh, such a beloved athlete and, and a member of the Philadelphia community? Well, I, th- I think he's just real. I mean, this, this town more than anything sees through artifice, these few people that that uh, aren't really in it, you know, don't really believe it. Uh, you know, Jason's n- none of those things. He is fully authentic. He is uh, somebody who has embodied what this city really is about, which is like, hey, we're we're a blue collar, working class city. Uh, Jason didn't grow up here, but he came here and has adopted the city as as his own. And I think he embodies what the city's all about. Is, uh, you know, we are, I think we all have a chip on our shoulder. We're between New York and D.C. Uh, Philly's always kind of like, you know, sometimes not in the conversation when we feel like we should be. So, you know, there's always that feeling of like, oh, you know, you, you don't believe in us. You don't, you don't think we're anything. And Jason's whole career has been that, frankly. He is not, he was not, uh, he didn't get a scholarship. He wasn't drafted high up in the draft. He didn't have a lot of people that were saying like, oh, this, is, this kid's going to go places. And so he had to go out there and prove it. And he's still doing it. And I think that's what, why the city loves him, because he, he's still out there proving that he can do it. And that's, he's, he, he'll never have to pay for a drink <laughs> in the city for the rest of his life. <laughs> As the great Guy Clark says, and it's a great button to the film, always trust your cape. Kelsey streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Love the movie, uh, Don. Uh, also, uh, before I let you go, just well, shout out as a as a 
School teacher, love the work you did on Rock School. I wish every teacher could see that movie. Thank you so much. Well, that was our first film, and now this is our 14th film. So a nice bookend, right? So Absolutely. <laughs> Good talk with you, Don. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. That's Don Argut talking about his new documentary, Kelsey, here on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance. When we come back, we'll talk with our friend David Roth of Defector next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. You say yes, I say no. You say stop, I say go, go, go. Hey, back on downtown. Always love it when uh, David Roth of Defector and the co-host of the Distraction Podcast joins us. David stopped by uh, recently and joined uh, Bruce Pratt, Carrie Haskell, and myself for our typical wide-ranging discussion. All right, uh, before we get to the somewhat important stuff, I want to get to the really important things. How was the Defector birthday party? It was a good time. Uh, it's always a little weird, you know, to have a birthday party for a website, um, but it was it was fun. We did some readings, and there was, you know, a lot of people there who are like, you know, normal in every way, except for the fact that they would come to a party on a Wednesday night in the Lower East Side of Manhattan to talk about blogs with bloggers. I learned um, a really extraordinary thing from a guy that went to the same high school as me in the same smallish town in New Jersey about a childhood schoolyard game that I just got to write about on the website. So I've, I've had, uh, like, it was a real kind of a life-changing experience uh, that a game that I knew by one name, he went to a different elementary school and knew it by a different, much sillier name, like two miles away. All right. I look forward to, to reading more about that. Let's talk a little sports. Uh, we were saying this early on. I, I'm not a big Deion Sanders fan, but I love the fact that he's shaking up the button-down world of college football. Yeah, I think this is where I, I've landed on Dion too. I I find him exhausting from one moment to the next. He does uh, cut a really good <laughs> promo. Like, it's fun to watch him do a monologue, you know, and that is not a common skill among college football coaches. Like, they're there mostly to, like, impress uh, car dealership grandees and boosters and stuff. Whereas Dion's got a real – he's got that television sizzle. He's just a very annoying individual, I think. But for now, I'm at this level, and this is like sort of where defectors landed institutionally, that he's annoying enough people that we don't like that we're sort of ex willing to extend uh, the benefit of the doubt to him. Oh, yes, yes. I uh, look, and, and if, if the Nick Sabans of the world get annoyed, I'm all in on that. I love it. Yeah, I think the question is just, I mean, he's already gotten, I don't know very much about Jay Norville, who's the Colorado State coach, but he's already, uh, Dion, just by being Dion and, like, wearing sunglasses indoors, was clearly uh, driving Jay Norville insane. So we'll see where this goes by the time, I mean, I think sooner or later Colorado is going to run out of runway, and the fact that they're just, like, smaller than all the other teams in their conference is going to hurt them. But they've been playing pretty well so far, and uh, it's been, you know, as with any other 
sort of like wrestling heel type behavior. Like part of what you're looking forward to is the moment where he finally gets his comeuppance. It just might not happen until they play like USC next month or something. Uh, the Jets and Aaron Rodgers, I always felt it was mm-hmm. doomed to failure. And then when you factored in hard knocks, uh, you knew it was going to go south. This, even I didn't imagine a demise like this. This is, so I'm not a Jets fan, but I am a Mets fan. I grew up in Jets fan country. I am used to teams uh, whose names end in the letters ETS having incredibly bad and funny things happen to them. And I could not have imagined that this, I just did not think that this one was on the menu of possible options. And even after it happened, we were, you know, I was watching it with some coworkers and I was like, no, it's just, it's like a high ankle sprain or something. It's bad, but it's not. And they were all like, no, I, I think his season is over. <laughs> like, And it's hard to tell because Aaron Rodgers has had a look on his face that suggests that um, his season is over for like three years now. Like whenever it was that he started, I don't know, listening to Joe Rogan's podcast or whatever, like it's like his whole personality has darkened. Uh, but that is a real extraordinary turn of events. And the, you know, the thing that was weird about that game is that the defense looked amazing. Like they looked like the sort of team where even if you had 70% of Aaron Rodgers there with that team, then they're going to make the playoffs and they're going to annoy a lot of people all year long. And then it's just the one thing you can't do is put Zach Wilson in charge of it. And that is, we've got four more months of that coming our way. We're talking with David Roth here on downtown. I loved your piece on this, uh, uh, Linda Yaccarino and the demise of the website formerly known as Twitter. It's ending in, in really the most perfect of ways. Yeah. I, so I have not been going on there as much. Uh, and I found it kind of easy. I think for a while I was sort of, because I, you know, I've been on Twitter for more than 10 years and, that's the sort of habit that you kind of back into and then you realize <laughs> belatedly that there might be some withdrawal symptoms involved. And I was worried about that, you know, that, like, what am I going to do without my little serotonin boost every time I make a pun or, you know, spoonerize the name of somebody who's on everybody's TV. And it turns out that if the site gets bad enough, it's actually quite easy to leave. Uh, and I have not had a hard time with it, but I have really enjoyed her posts because her job is basically to do the, you know, please disperse, nothing to see here routine after, like, Elon tweets, you know, whatever, the protocols of the elders of Zion or whatever. And that (laughs) is, uh, I mean, that's the job she signed up for. It's just an exceptionally demeaning job. And she is performing it with all the vigor of an AI. Like, the language (laughs) and the style is basically indistinguishable from robot-generated content. So it feels right. Like, it feels uh, just uncanny and dystopian enough to fit what's going on over there. I mean, do you think the, he, she had to understand what the job was going to be going in? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's – I mean, this was what it was. I mean, that's sort of like the bit that I was trying to, to get at in the story because it, you knew that this is the sort of thing where – it's sort of like uh, the way that like David Culley coached the Houston Texans last year. You know, like he didn't do a bad job necessarily, but that was a really bad roster, and he knew that he was going to get thrown over as soon as they could. You know, hire somebody with a higher profile and fully get out from under some of their dead money. Um, 
that is extremely unfair to David Culley because he's like, you know, he took an NFL head coaching job, but I think he took it for the same reason that Linda Yaccarino took this job, which is like, I don't know, it's a CEO job at a big company. Like, there aren't that many of those. Uh, but you can't anticipate that, like, I mean, she should have known a little bit, but Elon is getting worse at this, like, geometric rate mm. that I think that even if she had this job and was like, all right, well, a lot of what I'm going to be doing is just putting on hip waders and, like, walking around in this garbage bog all day and then talking about how great it was. I think she probably underestimated how fetid the bog was, <laughs> but that's common. I mean, I think I would have, too, you know, like. Uh, I think even, you know, six months ago, I wouldn't have guessed that Twitter could achieve the level of bad vibes that it's achieved. Yeah, I'm waiting for him to share a post from a Nazi this weekend and for her to immediately tweet out Shana Tova, friends. Right. Yeah. To all of our uh, treasured Jewish users, uh, obviously, Happy New Year. And that is the official position of all of us here at uh, X.com. Yeah, that is 100% the vibe right there. He's, it's been, I mean, I think there's already everybody's getting like, you know, maybe about 300 or 400% more Elon Musk in the monitors than they signed up for these days. But this has been a really bad week for it because that, that book is out and there's all these reviews of it and there's all these excerpts from it. And I should know better than reading it. It's like not the sort of thing where there's nothing that's going to surprise me about him at this point. But I did, in, in getting ready for that post, read a lot more stuff than I needed to. And it was like, if you spend more than 15 minutes of your life reading about Elon Musk, you are going to get a tummy ache for sure. Like, that is, there is just nothing good in there. Would it be less painful to read Mitt Romney's book? <laughs> I feel like Mitt Romney's undergoing this reassessment that he's had, he's done nothing to warrant. But it's strange. I talked to my parents about this stuff every now and then, and they're MSNBC people. And they've always, my dad especially, who was like, I were, you know, I talked to him in 2012. Like, he was alive when that election happened. And he remembers what Mitt Romney said about half the country being moochers and all the, you know, things that he did when he was running Bain and all that. I mean, he's like a, a pretty lousy guy. He's just also, in a lot of ways, a, a decent man from one moment to the next. He just happens to have done bad things for a living for decades. But I don't know if it's the MSNBC stuff or if it's just that the rest of the party has rocketed into, you know, psychosis so quickly. But my father talks about him, you know, he's like, why wouldn't he caucus with the Democrats? Why would he, you know, if he's upset by these things, like maybe he comes over and starts doing the honorable thing. And I was like, he's never done that, dude. He's not going to do that. He's going to literally retire instead of doing that. And while I can't say that I was trying to win that argument with my dad, I would have loved it if Mitt Romney followed whatever conscience he says he has and voted the way that he feels like he should. It definitely is like fitting that he would be like, wow, this stinks. I hate this job. I'm going to leave. I can't you know, say that that's the wrong choice for him, but I, it is weird that uh, he's going to, I think, be held up as you know, sort of the last honorable man when, uh, you know, except for... I mean, I guess January 6th, you can't really say that he's taken a especially difficult vote in a surprising way since he got to the Senate. No, to, to me, it feels like Mitt Romney, it, it, he, he's, he's angry that the awful things that the Republican Party have done under during his time in the Republican Party 
aren't still being done in the nicer, quieter way they used to be done. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that it's with him, he always had that kind of, he presented very well. Like he seemed like a respectable guy, you know, outwardly he was. And so the idea that, and you know, what he actually advocated for was, I think, you know, a Romney presidency and a Trump presidency would have been policy-wise probably not very different. But tonally, this is just the opposite of his whole thing. And so, like, I do think that that's mostly what is offensive about it. You know, the idea of, like, they both would have cut taxes for rich people as a first order in this kind of garish way where there's a lot of, like, bunting and, you know, a bathing suit contest, whereas Mitt Romney would have made it look like a, you know, a smart, considered decision. To me, if it all ends up in the same place, I don't really know what any of those aesthetic differences are worth. Mm. Well, they said that, uh, they've said that as a rule, people who have pets are more compassionate. We know Trump never had one. Does Romney get a pass even though he put his on top of the car in the carrier for trips? I was going to say, I was going to say that, like, there's, there, it turns out that there is actually something worse than not having a pet in this case. That there's, there's a secret third Mitt Romney option that is considerably more unappealing than any of the other stuff we talked about. So I guess you got to give him credit for that. Pretty normal Republican, but he did really innovate in that one space. Uh, along similar lines, it's not great for the country, but I'm kind of enjoying seeing Kevin McCarthy twist in the wind this quickly. It's tough. I mean, I, I think we're going to, I mean, I can't really tell what any of this is going to amount to, but him having to work at the behest of like the 18 craziest people in his party, all of whom are, I think like basically in office because the voters of their district got together and were like, is there some way that we can get Lauren Boebert out of here for nine months out of the year? Is there a way that we can guarantee that she'll never be here on a weekday? And that is what, so now those people are his boss and he has to do more or less what they say. They haven't even been able to figure out what it is that they're trying to run this indictment on, that it's all based on stuff that you need a, a decoder ring. Like if you don't watch 20 hours of Fox News a day, it's impossible to tell what the actual cause of action is going to wind up being here, but he's got to got to play it out. Which, you know, again, it's sort of it's like David Culley coaching the Texans. Like, congratulations to you, man, Speaker of the House. How does it feel? And my guess is pretty lousy. Then down in Florida, you can always count on Ron DeSantis. Let's do exactly the opposite of what the government, the CDC, and any respectable medical experts suggest. No, no, do not. Whatever you do, do not take this new COVID vaccine because we didn't kill enough Floridians the last time. This is such a – I feel like this happens every time there is a presidential cycle, that some jumped-up goofball governor reactionary type does something that amounts to this. I mean, this is DeSantis is different because it is it has this extra, you know, valence with it and he's like twenty five percent more annoying than any other candidate, which is I think maybe not as much of a strength as he figured it would be. The but all of it in the past, I remember Bobby Jindal doing similar stuff in Louisiana and it's there's something especially dark about it, the idea of being like, all right, well you're gonna like maybe 
well, you're certainly not going to prevent a few thousand deaths, and you're doing this so that you can come in fourth in Iowa and then drop out. Like that's what that's what it's worth. Like it really does put a pretty fine point on all of this. And I mean, I'll say this too: as somebody who like recently had COVID, like it still sucks. Even if it's not going to kill you, if you can give me a free shot that I can take that will make it less likely, then I'll get it. Like I'll definitely take that. I didn't enjoy disrupting my life, and I didn't enjoy feeling sick for a week. Like. That, this isn't complicated. So the idea that all of this somehow, you know, is a like a football that you can toss around to your advantage is, I mean, beyond being irresponsible and stuff, it just feels to me like a losing move. Like you're pandering to people that are fundamentally unappeasable. And I think all normal people, however many of those we've got left in our culture, are going to look at this and uh, get faintly nauseated. I, I think the Jindal comparison is a really good one, yeah. And he's, I really do feel like DeSantis is going to end up in the same boat. I mean, we haven't heard anything from, from Bobby in, what, a decade almost now. No, I mean, I feel like he's, like, lobbying or, you know, probably, but which is fine. I mean, it was none of these guys really care about the job. I mean, it seems like a pretty important job, but it seems like every governor – views that as not a terminal position, that it is like a sort of a stepping stone, which is, you know, it's a weird thing, too, because I feel like one thing that I would have to, you know, check this, and I'm on the radio, so I can't do it right now. If Bobby Jindal lived in Louisiana right now, I would be a little bit surprised. Like, I feel like all of these guys, once they've basically hit their ceiling and realized that uh, they're only going to you know, be able to do so much, that at that point, like, what's left for Bobby Jindal there? You know, like, he already showed what he thought of Louisiana when he was the governor of it. He's not, like, he doesn't have any business left there. So that's where, you know, if you, so if I, if it turned out that he was in, like, Palm Beach, uh, just sitting on a boat all the time, like, it would not surprise me in the least. It's David Roth with the Sun Downtown Hour. Thanks to David. Filmmaker Don Argett as well. We remind you that Downtown is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.